I think what's important to remember about the Mule is that he is, socially speaking, a disruptor. He's a sharp, unanticipated shock to the system who basically throws it all off the rails. The Mule is also, I think, comparable to historical phenomena, like not just people. Um, the best example I have is the Black Death. Welcome back to Selden Crisis for the 20th and final episode of 2021. I hope you're all enjoying your happy holidays so far and have stayed as healthy as you can in these trying times. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up on the podcast in the new year, including the beginning of season three as we dive into the third volume of Asimov's epic with second foundation, The Search by the Mule, in just a couple of weeks. Today we have another special guest a historian of the British Empire with a deep fascination and appreciation of Asimov and Foundation by the name of TCA Akintya. His focus is on the history of law and legal practice at a global scale in the 18th and 19th centuries, and his doctoral work looks very specifically at the lives of lawyers in the 19th century British Empire. But more broadly, he works on ideas of power and life at an imperial scale. Welcome, Akintya, to Selden Crisis. Hi. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, not sure I can really top that introduction, so uh, <laughs> hello again. I first encountered you on the R. Asimov subreddit a while back, and I was immediately struck by your passion for the books and your penetrating analysis of some of the core topics Asimov brought up. Can you tell me how you discovered his works and what they mean to you? So I can't really tell you from where I remember Asimov. I've been reading him since I was a child. Uh, I think what I do remember, my earliest memories of his work are the Susan Calvin robot stories, um, the short stories he'd write, uh, I think from iRobot, possibly the first one. But for me, Foundation's always been particularly special because of the way it sort of engages with questions of human history and sweeps of human culture. I think it's from that book that I always sort of concluded that Asimov really is a historian at one level. And he grapples with a lot of the conundrums that historians engage with. So his work really does speak to everybody who's sort of interested in humanity from a historical perspective. I think that's one of the main reasons that I resonated with him too as soon as I started reading him. Um, that sense of deep time, uh, forwards and backwards. Um, I read his histories of the Old and New Testaments not too long ago and just loved his no-nonsense approach to explaining what was going on in the Near East at the time they were written and how some actual events did correlate with the stories to varying degrees. I, I could always trust Asimov to have a very rational approach to something like that, but also have the sheer passion to attempt it, the audacity. So uh, do you have any favorite Asimov novels besides Foundation that have inspired you, other sci-fi writers you like? Um, so there's The Ugly Little Boy and then there's Nightfall. I know neither of them are really originally novels. They were short stories, but then they got expanded into novels and they've always appealed because of the way Asimov feel, uh, steps outside of his comfort zone with those stories. He's really writing about things that I don't think he ever visits again 
with some of his other work, which, I mean, he often got tropes. If you think about, for instance, his supercomputer stories. Um, and, you know, they really grapple with these questions of the human experience that makes them really great reads. And they question, they make you question your personal assumptions about how the world works, which is, you know, an important part of my research, it, it, like trying to sort of question what you're doing at every stage. In terms of other authors, Michael Crichton's been a huge favorite of mine, especially the Jurassic Park novels and his whole thing of chaos theory and science and how to understand society and scientific endeavor. The, the Ugly Little Boy, I don't know if you know, um, Asimov claimed that that was his favorite short story. I didn't know that. Yeah. But it, it is his most moving. There's a level of... I think Asimov struggles a little with human connection at times. And I think Ugly Little Boy is his best human story. The, uh, opposite sex, I think. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but Ugly Little Boy is very good humanistically. You know, they're, they're, they're very real people in that story in a way that Susan Calvin never really comes across as, admittedly, she's not meant to. She is somewhat, you know, the whole point of her being robotic herself. But... Eh, a lot of his characters sort of feel like tropes, whereas Ugly Little Boy is just something else. I was thinking about how um, Michael Crichton talks about chaos theory and, and uh, how uh, life will find a way and that kind of thing in Jurassic Park. Uh, and you reminded me of that because um, I've been thinking about chaos theory lately and how it applies to uh, something, a f- core uh, piece of, of premise in Foundation, which is psychohistory. Um, so I'm kind of curious uh, what you think of the likelihood of something like psychohistory being developed, because uh, I've heard some people say that ideas of chaos theory that hadn't been around when Asimov was writing would tend to undermine any possibility of making accurate mathematically based predictions of future history. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm not much of a scientist, you know, um, but... The thing is, Asimov's always struggled with psychohistory himself as a concept. Almost as soon as he started writing it, he realized that the fundamental irrationality of the human experience makes it very difficult to predict things and makes humanity very difficult to sort of, you know, control for. He starts with this presumption of what if we could reduce humanity down to atoms, but then, you know, very quickly on, he sort of has to put these rules in place to deal with the fact that how to deal with human irrationality. Uh, humans, by this, as is, you know, I, I, by very nature of the fact that we aren't scientific phenomena, we, we react irrationally. So he has to come up with these rules of humanity can't know about it. Uh, he has to create the entire second foundation with superpowers so that humanity can be mind controlled at one level. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure if, if psychohistory is really you know feasible as a concept a lot of scientific concepts with quantum mechanics have sort of showed the limits of our predictive ability there's a limit to what mathematics can do for us and at some level point there are just too many variables to account for and i think humanity is by definition too many variables i kind of think the same but i'm i'm also uh, aware that we only so far have uh, uh, a few billion humans to work with and if we were in the situation of having quintillions, uh, then maybe that would change the, the way it could work. And maybe you could develop 
more precise patterns uh, for prediction. But um, yeah, there's probably still uh, a lot of things that would uh, torpedo it in practice. So uh, let's bring it back to your specialty. Uh, what specific points in human history do you think Asimov drew from in creating foundation? So, you know, there's always the obvious answer, which a lot of people have pointed out, which is the Roman Empire. Uh, but Asimov's empire draws a lot on not only the Romans, but it's always felt like it's drawn also on its Byzantine successors. And we do know Asimov was fascinated with that period, uh, given that, you know, the primary actors he's got uh, resonate more with the Byzantine Empire. Um, I'm forgetting the names at the moment. The, the Belisarius is uh, Belrios's uh, inspiration. But it's always felt to me that the foundation draws on empires in general. Maybe it's just because of my work, but a lot of Asimov's work seems inspired by the British Empire and a lot of other world empires. And with the foundation and, you know, this weird mix of religion and science and trade out of terminus, I also can't help but feel that Asimov's drawing a lot on the United States and its whole neoliberal empire. There's some fairly sharp critiques of the 20th century world hidden away in the foundation novels, especially when it relates to the foundation's own burgeoning commercial empire. Uh, that makes me ask you what critiques do you have in mind? Are there any that stand out? Uh, so, for instance, you know, this whole problem of the merchant princes. Uh, Asimov sets up the merchant princes as a historical um, phenomena. But then he sort of goes on to say that, you know, they're going to eventually reach the limits of their ability to shape events. And they can very quickly create uh, what are effectively oligarchies. Uh, during the novel of The Mule, Terminus has effectively been captured by oligarchies or, or capitalist oligarchies. And the mayors have become uh, almost dynastic. I think the mayor at the time is Indubur III, with the implication that there's multiple mayors of the same dynasty it's it's a fairly anti-capitalist critique if you think about it how pure capitalism will lead to uh you know uh, oligarchies and monopolistic uh anti-competitive practices and it's this sort of in the 19th if you think of it in the 60s and 70s it's a sort of critique of the u.s free trade at all costs model which uh, you know was a point of practically propaganda uh, at the era particularly in the context of the anti-soviet world that uh, American politics was often geared towards. Hmm. There's a particular uh, part at the end of the general that really intrigued me. And that's uh, in the very, the very last exchange between uh, Lathan Devers and uh, Senate Forel, who was that, that the traitor who was descended from Hober Mallow. And they're, they're talking about the, uh, how the economy is uh, now what what is it Lathan Devers is standing up for what he seems to be standing up for the plutocrats and it seems out of character in a way like you would think he'd be like one fighting for the the ordinary guy and uh and it turns out that he ended up you know being a, a very uh, cryptically referred to later on in the mule as having died in the slave mines and I, along with uh, Torin's grandfather, whoever that was, 
And it's uh, it, it's one of those things Asimov just throws in there, and you know, there's a whole whole novel behind it, you know, that he never wrote. And but I I always wondered uh, what was going on there in Lathan Deaver's mind, what he, what he was really thinking, and and when he wrote that part, or when he said that in the story, or what Asimov was thinking through Lathan Deaver's. So anyway, uh, that brings me right up to the mule, uh, and the mule is just one of the most fascinating characters for me in the whole epic. Um, and I wonder what inspirations Asimov might have had for the mule and why he, you know, since he was so historically oriented. So do you have any uh, historical an analogies to the mule that you would think of? Yeah, I've got a few. So I think what's important to remember about the mule is that he is, socially speaking, a disruptor. He's a sharp, unanticipated shock to the system who basically throws it all off the rails. And in terms of history, there's people who are analogous to him, Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan, you know, those people who sort of fundamentally shape the world in such a way that the world they leave behind is unrecognizable from what they had found. And, you know, the shock of their disruptions echoes for generations and it just you know not just generations sometime millennia but the mule is also i think comparable to historical phenomena like not just people um the best example i have is the black death it's a completely unforeseen disruption to society and to the very foundations of society that comes out of nowhere and what's interesting about asimov and all of this is you know he's very squeamish about dealing with death in his story the mule is a huge harbinger of change. And, you know, he sort of shies away from a lot of these implications. And so in a funny way, you're left with a story where, which is remarkably um, anesthetized, or that may be the wrong term, but sort of, you know, very clean in terms of the impact of the story. And yet his later novels sort of imply that, sort of talk about just how deep-seated that change was. I always thought the mule is also really interesting in how Asimov shies away from not making him a religious figure. You'd sort of think about the way the mule engenders these feelings of deep love uh, and sort of devotionalism, and that's often been tied to religious cults and religions. But Asimov seems to be very clear in wanting to make him purely political and economic and focusing on him as a conqueror rather than you know, the implications of him converting minds. But in some ways, the reason I'm mentioning it is because the mule also is very close to religious sort of, you know, uh, leaders and the impact religious leaders can sometimes have on society. If you think of someone like, say, Martin Luther and the amount of change he causes with in Christianity. Uh, and for Asimov, it's just interesting that he was often very involved with religion and yet he it's always been interesting to me that he just refuses to sort of see the mule in religious terms. Yeah. Um, I, I'm taken by that squeamishness comment because I'm thinking, you know, I found the mule almost endearing, you know, as a character, you know, and here he is a world, you know, a universe conquering demon in a way, you know, just totally disrupting things. And, you know, you would think, uh, there, there must be, you know, large genocides happening, and you know, 
tremendous human casualties and, and things on, on the planets he conquers, but you don't hear any description of those details. So I think that helps you to uh, feel like he's okay. You know, he, he maybe he's conquering the whole galaxy, but he's he's not that bad. You know, especially with the you know the head fake with Magnifico uh, thrown in there because the whole time you're you're kind of really feeling for Magnifico until you know you find out who he really is. Um, so that that's that's an intriguing aspect of Asimov's writing. I'm, I'm wondering if some of that squeamishness in regard to the mule was intended so you could you know, be gravitate towards seeing him as a, a you know kind of a, a likable figure in some sense. Yeah, but maybe it goes against it too because you don't feel the horror as much when you don't feel like you don't see any of the evidence of it being horrible. Sometimes I felt like when when they uh, they had that lunchroom discussion in um, the beginning of uh, right in the middle of the mule um, after the fall of uh, Terminus and the back on Haven uh, the mule was closing in and everybody was getting more and more depressed and more and more you know, upset and anxious and everything. And there was that one character, Hella, uh, who was the cynical one saying, you know, I think it'd be kind of cool if the mule took over and everything. And, and I'm thinking, you know, that's not a bad argument. And say, and Pritchard makes the same argument too. You know, if you just, if you think about it, the mule's doing what you all, what Selden wanted to do. He's kind of putting the, putting things together in a good way. And it's kind of a hard argument to, to fight against because you don't see those human casualties that come with it. Especially since the foundation does seem to have human casualties, like a lot. There's, references to wars and you know destroyed ships and conflict and he sort of yeah i mean maybe it does he have finds a, a way to do it cleanly and neatly and and everything's <laughs> just no not a big deal yeah of course he is a total you know totalitarian dictator you know but uh he he's almost like uh he strikes me as kind of like one of these enlightened conquerors like cyrus the great or something that um you know, the, the people who he's conquered are kind of in a miserable, semi-barbaric state, and he elevates their civilization and makes things better for most of the people. Or, you know, you could say the same about Alexander to some degree, and maybe Julius Caesar with the Gauls and things like that, bringing civilization to the, the, the remote parts. So anyway, uh, that's that's a great, uh, we could talk about the mule for an hour, I'm sure. Um I'm curious what you think about Asimov's uh, future history and whether you think it's reasonable at all. Um, and if not, why not? So, you know, the problem with history is that um, looking back makes it always difficult to be certain about looking ahead. In broad strokes, I think Asimov's future history is quite reasonable. I'd say the parts that I find most unbelievable is how calm his whole humanity tends to be. You know, he tells the story of turmoil and political upheaval, but his galaxy is remarkably tranquil when you consider how chaotic and violent humanity tends to be. I've always found it a little hard to believe that a civilization spread across, you know, thousands of planet planets wasn't engaged in almost constant conflict. Even at the height of the empire, you know, large parts of the imperial domain would have presumably been bubbling constantly with insurgencies, revolts, interplanetary conflicts. 
and he does allude to it a little when he talks about you know the, the how much the military is expend ex, sort of spent on and how ma- and how it's a major part of the empire's expense but even in the depths of his imperial collapse which admittedly he sort of skips over in many ways you still get the impression of life going on in a way that makes it a little hard for me to believe but you know having said that that's my only real critique but in general i'd say asimov's future history is incredibly viable in terms of the sort of detail with which he sets things up and it's an empire which is fundamentally pretty believable to me it's always been one of the most sort of believable aspects of sci-fi contrasted to something like say star wars and i'm just like yeah no i don't see how something like star wars works as fun as it is but Asimov has always been very believable from like a social con- point of view. Well, he was basing it on real uh, empires that had existed, so that you can see why you know they they had uh, it followed the same kind of patterns that like the Roman Empire and the British Empire had a lot of the details. Um, so, but I read something the other day uh, on a video comment thread uh, exploring the question of whether or not a galactic empire would be possible. And assuming that you still have the limit of, of, you know, Asimov got around it by saying there's FTL travel, you know, you faster than light travel. But if you did have the limit of of the speed of light for travel and for communication, uh, one of the, uh, a comment was made that this communication problem would be just a, a showstopper. Uh, and my last guest, Stephen Webb, uh, pointed this out as well, that if Anacreon were situated roughly as far away from Trantor as our star system is to our galactic center, it would take roughly 50,000 years for a message to go one way between the two. So if you got a back and forth about some problem brewing on the periphery and you had several messages back and forth, you're talking about 50,000 years or so, you know, each time, and you're talking half a millennium before you can even get started on resolving the problem. Uh, So that seems like it would be difficult. So I I was thinking about how you study the British Empire, and in the the height of the British Empire, there there were also long times before communication and for you know travel back to to remote parts they controlled so on a much smaller reduced scale there's kind of a similar problem so how did they deal with it you know those kind of problems so you know this is actually something uh, a lot of historians would probably get very excited about because this reduction of the conundrum of distance is actually one of the motivating problems empires have been dealing with since empires have pretty much existed. Uh, The British Empire wasn't the first to grapple with it. And a lot of empires actually came up with very innovative solutions. So the Mongol Empire, for instance, had this system called the Yam Network, which in many ways is the precursor to modern postal systems. And the British had this problem as well. It could take, it often took months uh, and later weeks to travel from one end of the empire to the other. And a lot of the technological innovation that we've seen through the 19th and 20th century has been tied to the idea of reducing distances, of tying the world together closer. So the evolution, for instance, of the steamship was ultimately about trying to sail faster and faster, to get from point A to point B faster. 
the telegraph is developed to allow for faster communication, that whole problem of how are you send help, reducing that from weeks of a courier carrying letter to, you know, days or even hours. And the telegraph network is one of the first great trans-imperial global projects. It's, 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 it's a physical infrastructure project that spans the globe. And it would go on to become the basis of the modern world in many ways because that's what the internet is based on. To this day, a lot of the undersea cables for the internet follow the routes laid down for the transcontinental telegraph, telegraph cables. So, you know, this question of distance and space and the reduction of the world is at the core of how empires understood themselves and their mission. And, you know, you can't write a history of science without exploring the ways empires have tried to grapple with this question of reducing, uh, you know, gaps. Asimov, of course, has to deal with it somewhat, you know, unscientifically. He's got his convenient, faster-than-light skip around, which is... uh, uh, the, the, the way his ships jump from point A to point B. But he still deals, tries to sort of keep it realistic so that travel is still nonetheless not instantaneous. It's not, you still have to travel a certain distance out. And it, it I mean, all science fiction will always have to take some element of fiction. You, you, you can't be purely scientific. Otherwise, it would just be, you know, <laughs> it's just presentism. Uh, but, I, in, you know, in a way, he deals with it fairly... Fairly intelligently, a lot of I know a lot of scientists would say that can't really be possible. Faster than light travel can't exist, and I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to challenge quantum physics, but I will say, uh, you know, 300 years ago, if you'd shown someone a mobile phone, they wouldn't have believed it was possible. There was just no way science could have predicted the creation of something like the mobile phone, or the fact that you know we're sitting at opposite ends of the country and talking to each other in real time. There was no way Americans from even the 18th century would have thought that was possible. So there's no sort of, you know, the conundrums of reducing space haven't vanished. We may have colonies on the moon in a few years for all we know, and God knows how that will go in terms of establishing instantaneous connection with them. Yeah, and, and your, uh, your point about invention, you know, sparking innovation and like with the internet and, uh, well, with the telegraph first uh, and the railways, it, it makes me think like if we had this situation where humans were, were establishing colonies on different in different star systems, even if that took like you know many centuries to develop, it, it's the in the nature of humanity for like somebody to want to control the situation, right? And somebody's going to rise to a point of power where they're going to say, "Well, I don't; those people are far away, but I still want them under control. I want I want to establish." my control over this situation. So there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, drivers for innovation there. Maybe that's where uh, faster than light communications and travel will come in, you know, when, that finding a way to, to clamp down on uh, insurrections in the, on the periphery. You know, that, that's, so we know, who knows? So um, you'll recall uh, that in the first story in Foundation and Empire, the general, uh, Asimov explored the question of how much history is driven by extraordinary individuals, that is, the great man theory of history versus the idea that sociological forces bring such individuals to prominence inevitably, 
do you have any thoughts on how this idea has been explored uh, pertaining to our history and to Asimov's treatment of similar ideas in foundation? So, you know, there is the original great man theory in the 19th century that postulated that human history was fundamentally influenced by quote-unquote heroes who were innately blessed with qualities of leadership and influence. Now, almost from the day it was argued, it was fairly controversial, mostly because of this idea of some people being innately suited for leadership. The deeper debate with that, that that theory sparked and that sort of consumed historians and the one that Asimov himself grapples with is whether human society is fundamentally shaped by the actions of individuals or great historical sociological forces. The conceit of humanity that Asimov seemingly argues against with psychohistory is that human history is shaped more by great sociological sweeps and inertia, uh, and, and, and individuals can't really affect that. Um, and if anything, individuals who seem to shape history are actually actors, you know, uh, or, or convenient actors taking advantage of great historical forces that happen to be converging. So right time, right place, rather than, you know, anything they're doing themselves. Uh, and so the psychohistorical argument is that they actually have very little agency in shaping outcomes. But I've always considered, and this is the debate Asimov is dealing with, the reason I call it a debate is, the more I think Asimov wrote Foundation, uh, the more he realized there was something paradoxical about this claim. If you look at the early novels, even though it seems that historical necessity is the real protagonist, it can still be argued that had it not been for the agency of specific people, certain psychohistorical predictions would have failed. Um, Asimov then leans into this paradox more with Foundation and Empire. Uh, the first story has always read like the apothesis of psychohistory. All the human characters have zero agency. They are predestined to a remarkable degree. And then you get this next story, which sort of takes that lesson and says, and sort of almost like throws it out of the window. All the weight of historical necessity is swept aside by a single human endowed with unique, arguably innate skills. And then you get the second foundation where psychohistory is almost a meme at this point. You know, it's a convenient tool for humans in the form of foundation years and second foundation years. Uh, and the second foundation years are revealed to be the real masters of human destiny. And they have a lot of agency. They're not acting purely by weight of predictions alone. They, they have control. They, they get to choose. So which is it? Uh, do individuals have agency over human history? Do collectives of individuals uh, uh, or, uh, within humanity do it? Or is it all at the feet of impersonal sweeps? I'm not sure Asimov ever really had a clear answer. It's a philosophical conundrum. Uh, and he can't resolve it. And that's, a, you know, I, I suppose that's good philosophy. At the end of the day, philosophy never really does have clear answers. And he continues to sort of explore it in different ways with his later novels. But he doesn't sort of tell the reader that this is a clean answer to your philosophical, to the paradox he's dealing with. And that's why I think it's so good to revisit because it's not just a story. He's also then, you know, dealing with a fundamentally philosophical question, which you sort of try and think about in different ways. Yeah. When you get into the sequels uh, with, uh, especially when you get into foundation and earth, 
the a lot of readers are if you look on the our Asimov and stuff uh, subreddit are not great fans of that because there's not clean answers because it, a lot of the the what's going on in there is that you know the constant back and forth with Treviz and Bliss they're always bickering back and forth about things and it kind of almost gets tiresome but I think it's Asimov trying to figure that out and like having an internal discussion and trying to resolve it himself and, and struggling with it, not being able to figure out what is the best ultimate human future. You know, should we go with this, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, uh, eco-communism thing of, of Gaia and Galaxia, or do we you know, like have a, another perfectly run empire, you know, beyond what we had all in the past and he did, has a hard time. So I think uh, I, I like that. I like that he's, I'm seeing kind of the internal workings of him figuring, working on really difficult problems. And there's kind of a, uh, a sense of, you know, it makes sense and it's, it's appropriate that he has difficulty coming to a, an answer, you know, it, it shows me that it's real to him. It's like some, it's a real problem that he's working on, not just a story. So, yeah, go ahead. It, it's a little, I agree, it's a little narratively clunky, uh, particularly because this is a guy who's so used to writing stories with dozens of characters, you know, at various points, reducing them all down to three people in a ship doesn't do justice, you know, doesn't do wonders for his stat. Know, story in terms of making it interesting but foundation and earth in some ways really was pure philosophy in a way that foundation's edge really wasn't foundation's edge was an adventure novel it, it annoyed me foundation and earth he goes off on the deep end philosophically and we know that he never could figure out what to do next so he just you know went to the other end of the spectrum uh with his prelude to foundation but yeah, it's 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 a lot that he's trying to grapple with, and in that sense, it's always been my favorite book to revisit, because those conversations, once you get past the fact that they're not doing a lot narratively, uh, are great fun to sort of you know say, oh yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I love the exploration too, and the the uh, coming back to the things you if you read the robot novels especially, and you know you, your memories of Solaria and Aurora, and you know actually coming back to those places so much later, you know, beyond uh, those times that were described when he originally wrote about them. It's just amazing. Let's talk about the show for just a moment. The, the Apple TV show. Um, what did you think of it? Did you think it worked? Uh, you know, I will say this, the Apple TV show, since we've been talking great men a little, uh, it's an interesting thing to sort of bring it up at this point. I like the show. Uh, you know, I, I know it's caused no shortage of outrage, particularly for its enormous deviations from the canon of Asimov's novels. I'm going to now say this. I'm just really quickly going to add, this seems to be a running trope with internet fandoms. Uh, I just watched the second season of The Witcher and fan reaction is not happy. They're like, changes to the books. You know, How can you change anything from the books? But for me, uh, you know, I thought the show did a very interesting job of trying to explore the philosophy uh, of the world of foundation through the medium of fiction. And I think the shows tried to sort of live up to that reasonably well. They've engaged with musings of their own. 
through the prism of Asimov's story. So, you know, they're dealing with questions of agency and subjectivity. Uh, and ideas of identity and belonging in human history. And these are questions that I think are consistent with what Asimov would have liked to explore. So I think the favorite elements of the show for me have been the way they grapple with the idea of Selden himself being an unreliable narrator and actor. It's a concept Asimov explored in the Foundation novels, but sort of really late in his story, this idea that potentially Selden is not necessarily the same person you know him as. And, and I can appreciate that the show is trying to live up to those ideals of philosophy. I think the plotting could use some work. There's definitely some elements of it which have been sort of plotting. But they've done some really good things and they're trying to put their own musings of religion and, you know, what does it mean to be human, which is very true to Asimov, even if it's not part of the foundation story. The whole question, for instance, of the bicentennial man is... Um, this whole question of what is humanity, you know, Zeno's paradox. Uh, no, sorry, the Theseus ship paradox. I'm mixing up my Greek philosophy. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you sort of, you can see them grappling with similar questions with their three, you know, their, their Cleonic dynasty and whatnot. Uh, philosophically, it's been interesting, uh, even if it's not, you know, a narrow adaption of Asimov's books. Yeah, well, I've talked about it on the podcast, how I, I really enjoyed it, uh, despite... Yeah, inevitable flaws in the story development that always come with trying to bring a project like this to life in a new and richer medium where, you know, when Asimov was writing it, he didn't have to worry about what things looked like. And uh, obviously, Apple made a, a very strong effort to, or I should say Goyer, the showrunner, made a great effort to, to really bring it to life and create these rich environments and things. And that's one of the things that just blows me away and why I just love watching it. And, and I, I really enjoy that as a musician, I really enjoy the soundtrack and that just, you know, it, you feel it. But uh, one of the uh, best aspects of Asimov's storytelling to me is surprises and reveals, you know, like the mule and, there are more and more of them as it goes on. I mean, big, you know, like things you just were not expecting, and suddenly they hit you like you know, a ton of bricks. And I, looking looking at the show before it started, I was thinking, well, I I really kind of hope they don't do it predictably exactly like everything that's been spelled out in the books, because that's not going to be any fun. That's not going to have the same fun that you get from like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And that certainly happened in the last couple episodes, especially, you know, towards the end. Um, and, you know, despite me trying to predict in advance what was going to happen, I was wrong and they, they got me. So I, that, that's, uh, to, to, that worked for me. So I'm going to um, move on to my next question. And, uh, <laughs> this is one about one of my favorite topics, my own podcast. Um, how did you come across it? And do you have any favorite episodes so far? So I, I, I have to give credit to Reddit. Uh, there was someone there who sort of said, this is a great podcast. You have to, you know, you sound like someone who's interested in Asimov. This is, you have to read this. I think I had said something on a comment, which somebody else tagged you as well and said, you know, uh, this podcast has said something very similar. Have you seen it? And that was just 
uh, and that's how I thought it was also introduced introduced to you. Um, you know, off your episodes, I'd say so far my favorite has been uh, the one where you talk about Bell Rios. Uh, hang on, which was what's it called? The Dead Hand and the Living Will. Um, I think it's you know I, I'll be honest, I, I'm not very good at listening to podcasts. I've been reading your transcripts. Uh, I'm not sure if that is the right way to approach podcasts, but. <laughs> Uh, the Dead Hand uh, and the Living Will is, uh, you know, I think it's a great essay because you, you've you done this fantastic thing about deconstructing the problems Bell Rios is facing as you sort of deconstruct the great man theory. I, I loved it, particularly because, you know, I, 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 have, I, I read that podcast and I just had to go back and reread the novel because you had pointed out things that I need to yeah. like, I need to reread Bell Rios again. I this guy was. I'm really glad to hear you talk about the transcripts because um, at my day job, um, which I haven't really talked about on the podcast yet, it, I'm an accessibility engineer for a healthcare company, and one of the foundational principles in accessibility is that people should have access to content in whatever format they need or want, and. I don't have a hearing disability myself, but I often find myself wanting to refer to a transcript after listening to a podcast episode. Often, you know, guests uh, get into really interesting discussions and I'm, oh, I want to go back and read that. And it's not there. They didn't put one up. So that's um, one of the things that was just absolutely necessary for me was to do transcripts. And so I, I found a, a host where it was easy to do that. Uh, transistor FM, and that's uh, been the, that's been really easy to do for the most part, especially with my uh, pre-written scripts because I don't have to change those at all. This one's going to be a lot more work. So, uh, what comes next for you? What are your career aspirations as a historian? Any specific projects you have in mind? Well. Uh... You know, this is this is the question where if you ask anybody in my field, they'd always be a little nervous. Uh, job market is never sort of you know certain with academia. I, I do a job that's incredibly fun, that's you know incredibly sort of fulfilling in a way that I I, I don't think I would have gotten if I were doing something more nine to five. But the downside is you know uh, I, <laughs> uncertainty comes sort of part and parcel with it. Uh, in an ideal world, I'd love to simply be able to teach somewhere, you know, uh, some research on the side, but teaching is uh, really my passion, teaching history. And so my aim with my sort of broad career would be to try and teach. Uh, you know, I, I don't have ambitions of being the greatest historian of my time, <laughs> but uh you know, a competent teacher who's encouraging a generation of students to think critically about the past would be, you know, critically about how to deal with the past in their various ways is something I'd like to do. Asimov is a great inspiration in that sense. You know, people always ask, what's the point of doing history? And, you know, I can point to people like Asimov and say, you know what, there's, there's a million ways you can apply the lessons of history. Look at this guy. He became one of the most famous sci-fi authors in the world. And, you know, uh, who would Asimov be if he hadn't studied the Roman Empire? I'm sure he'd still be fantastic, but, you know. Or, or uh, just uh, to uh, 
point them to any book on history that Asimov wrote, and you can see how how fun it can be just to explore history and write about it, you know, and read about it from from Asimov. So anybody who can teach it that well. Uh, more immediately, my current project is really on my doctoral thesis. Um, I'm working on trying to understand lawyering in the British Empire in the 19th century. Um, you know, in some ways, it's a project that is quite influenced by Asimov. Uh, I'm interested in people as individuals, but the individuals are gateways to understanding broader sweeps of history. How did ordinary people understand, you know, what was law in the empire? How did law bind people across vast spaces and enormous geographical and cultural gulfs? And how did different legal systems get shaped? Uh, how, how do the systems we have today get shaped by the actions of sort of legal practitioners as a class of people? You know, you could argue that what I'm really trying to do is find my Salvor Hardin or Hober Malo uh, in the world of empire and through them sort of tell the story of understanding the world they inhabit, sort of like a reverse Asimov story. We know what the empire is like, the, the sort of, you know, great sweeps are like, what was it like being a person in that story? Asimov does the opposite. Asimov says, here's some people, I'm going to now use them to tell you the story of these great imperial shifts. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, do you do you see yourself uh, writing uh, historical fiction at some point, like Asimov? Uh, the, the idea has always appealed to me. I have always sort of worked on this little novel. I'm actually more intrigued by the idea of trying to write mythology but with a historical bent you know trying to sort of take mythological stories but write them historically um historical fiction is incredibly hard to do justice to because i'm so used to looking at my people clinically it's a little hard to then see them again as people <laughs> it's you know i've broken them down into such little a a you know non-emotional beings and then trying to give emotion back to them is a real struggle but i've always been i one project i've been trying to work on is taking indian mythologies um we've got these great epics sort of like you know the indian analogs to the trojan war uh, or the arthurian cycle the mahabharata and the ramayana but tell them with a more sort of you know find ways to keep them historically real no gods no superpowers um, mythology will have a lot of that. Well, that. That's a lot like what Asimov did with the Old and New Testament, especially the Old Testament, because so much of it is like mythological. It's just so far from you know, accurate reporting of what really happened. And you, it really is a great exercise to figure out what might have really happened that led to these stories being developed. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Akinta, for sharing your historical perspective on Asimov and Foundation and the British Empire, too. Um, it uh, seems appropriate to discuss history as we end another calendar year here on Earth in the 21st century. I hope things turn out well for you professionally and that you make the contributions to your field to which you aspire. I hope uh, you continue to find time to let Stalin crisis along the way. Uh, it's been great having you on, and I wish you a Happy New Year and many more to come. Happy New Year, and it's been a genuine honor 
being on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun listening and I'm glad I've been able to sort of play an active role here. Great. Okay, and now I'd like to thank all of my listeners for all the downloads and the wonderful feedback throughout the past nine months since the first episode way back in April. You've all made this so much fun, and I look forward to plenty of interactions with all of you in the years to come. Please keep reaching out to me via email at joel at seldoncrisis.net and via Twitter at my handle at Joel G. McKinnon. It's always a joy to hear from listeners. Have a happy new year and join me again in a couple weeks as I get back into storytelling mode with the first episode focusing on Second Foundation, a search by the mule here on Selden Crisis. Bye.